Hi, I'm Becky Sanders, and welcome to another episode of A Virtual View, where we talk about healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today we have with us Beth O'Connor. Beth and I have known each other for many years, and she is the Executive Director of the Virginia Rural Health Association, and, if that's not enough, President-elect of the National Rural Health Association, and that's where our paths have crossed many times over the years at National Rural Health Association policy events and annual conferences. So, Beth, can you tell us a little bit about the Virginia Rural Health Association? Sure, so VRHA is a statewide nonprofit advocacy organization working to improve the health and health care of the 2.5 million people who call rural Virginia their home. Thank you so much. And how long has the VRHA been around? So it has existed technically since 1996, but it didn't really get rolling until about 2003 when it had its very first annual conference in partnership with the Virginia State Office of Rural Health. Yeah, so we have very similar backgrounds for our rural health associations. The Indiana Rural Health Association had volunteers in the mid-90s, and it was like 1999 or so when we got our first executive director, as what we called it then, and now our CEO. But we also started with some state funding through the State Office of Rural Health to provide educational programs. And we've actually had more annual conferences, if you look at the number of conferences, than we've been incorporated. So I know we've talked earlier, just a couple of months ago, about the podcast series that you guys started. And what is the name of that series again? So our podcast is The Rural Health Voice. And what led you to start your podcast series? So that's a funny story in of itself. At the time, our board president, Summer Sage, was very enthusiastic, well still is very enthusiastic about podcasts, it's self-described podcast junkie. I personally had never proactively listened to a podcast. I'd heard a couple podcasts when I was with my husband on a road trip. He listens to podcasts, which in my opinion are very boring. So I thought podcasts were boring. And so I'd never actually listened to one, you know, on my own. And then one day out of the clear boost sky, Summer looks at me and says, Beth, we should have a podcast. And I went, what? <laughs> and I panicked. And so trying to avoid the inevitable, I started just spewing stuff out of my mouth. I started to say, well, you know, a podcast, you know, certainly there's going to be some sort of startup costs for this. Maybe there's going to be microphones and probably some software. And I'm just making stuff up off the top of my head, having no idea what I'm actually talking about. And so I said, you know, but let, let's do this. Let's see if, if I can't find a grant that would cover some of the startup costs for the podcast. And if we get it, then we can talk about having a podcast, um, which would have been great, except we got the grant. <laughs> and so suddenly I was in a situation where I had to start a podcast, um, which has turned out to be a great thing for the Virginia Rural Health Association. I really enjoyed it. But the initial panic phase was a bit much. Yeah, I have a similar story that I can share. So we run the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center underneath the umbrella of the Indiana Rural Health Association and cover four states, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. And when COVID hit in March of 2020, through the CARES Act at the end of March last year, 
we received some additional funds and I had this harebrained idea that, oh, you know, another way to reach out to listeners and have a more consumer focused product. Most of our products and stuff that we do are more provider focused. We'll start a podcast series. And I had no idea what I was committing myself to. And thankfully, our producer, Caroline Yoder, we hired her on, and she has been able to do the research and get everything together, and it's been an interesting ride. It certainly is entertaining. It definitely is. (laughs) We've been through several iterations already, and I think we've been pretty happy with Captivate. That has stayed the same for us, but we've switched from doing the initial recording over Zoom to now using Squadcast, and we think that's going to make our transcription process a little bit easier. So for our listeners, you will be seeing our transcriptions available in the show notes for all of our podcasts that have been produced so far. Now, Beth, what are you guys using for your podcasts? So we record over Squadcast like you do. We originally were using Ringer, and we found that it was just too glitchy. And then our uh, podcast is hosted by Blueberry. Ah, okay. Now, Blueberry is not one I'm very familiar with. How did you come across that one? So as part of the I Got a Grant to figure out the startup costs for a podcast, I went to an event called Podcast Movement, which is a rather large annual conference for podcasters. And I just started going from booth to booth to booth to booth asking questions. And the folks at Blueberry had the answers I liked. Very good. Very good. My research has been fairly limited. I've joined a couple of groups where I get emails and that kind of stuff about podcasts. It's the following of podcasts and the reach of podcasts is still astounding to me. It's a very niche area of entertainment media that seems to be growing by leaps and bounds, especially during COVID. Yeah, it's interesting when we look at our statistics on Blueberry of where our listeners are and how many downloads we get and whatever else, you know, not surprisingly, the Virginia Rural Health Association has the vast majority of our listeners in Virginia, but we have people all over the United States and a couple of people in Spain. I don't know why. Oh, wow. That's interesting. We looked at our stats and found, you know, most in the U.S., um, some Alaska I don't know that we've hit foreign countries yet, but I'll take a look at (laughs) and see what we can find. How long do you remember? Because you've been doing this a couple of years now, right? Yes. So we launched in September of 2018. Okay. So as we've launched, we were paying a lot of attention to the statistics that we get in. It's fun to see the numbers move. Have you figured out any special formulas to, if you use this word in your title, that you get more listeners? You know, for us, it really depends more on who our guest is. You know, we have a different guest for each episode. And if I have a guest with some sort of national prominence, that episode always gets a pile of attention. We uh, interviewed a while back the policy director for the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, Nathan Baugh. And NARC put that episode on their website under the resources section of basic information about rural health clinics. So that episode by itself has gotten a ton of attraction from rural health clinics all over the nation because it's just basically a a rural health clinic 101 for people who are interested in that. If there's a particular topic that's gained the most interest, I think probably any time that we do something on the opioid crisis, that tends to get a lot of attraction. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we've started small. We just started our podcast in December of 2020. So we've only been, you know, four months into this. And I think the one episode that we had that had the most views early on was our Connecting Kids to Coverage program. That's a CMS grant that we have under the Indiana Rural Health Association. And Tina Darling, that leads that program, shared that with all of the folks that they've partnered with. And I think she also shared it with our CMS contacts. So that one, you know, by virtue of her promoting it as well as us promoting it, I think has led to the many views on that one. Yeah, it's interesting sometimes how different topics can have different sources of attraction. There have been a couple episodes that I know that university professors have assigned to their students on a very specific topic. That's an interesting thing, too, as well. I run a fellows program. So, I don't know, 2015, 2016, I participated in the National Rural Health Association's fellowship program. And I enjoyed the experience so much that I wanted to recreate it here in Indiana. So we've got, this year we've got 21 fellows and six mentors. We've paired up different staff to be mentor pairs. And that might be a really good topic for our fellowship group is to do some research on podcasts. There you go. So Beth, with COVID, it has really changed the way we do our educational programs. What's Virginia looking like these days? So for Virginia, like most of the rest of the planet, our fall conference, our big annual conference went virtual. And the way that we set it up, we decided early on that we were not going to try to have live content and did not want to deal with any tech issues while we had a live audience. So instead, we got five speakers, including Alan Morgan, who's the CEO of the National Rural Health Association, and Dr. Jerome Adams, who at the time was the Surgeon General, and recorded interviews with them and had them speak on the specific topic. And we actually did quite well with that. We did not lose anything in participation. We had the same number of attendees as we usually did, and we're still able to get quite a few sponsors. So we were quite happy with the event. Very good. Our annual conference is typically in June of each year, so we actually had postponed it originally from June to November, and then when we had the spikes in the fall, ended up making it smaller and just doing not an annual conference, but just a fall conference. And I think we still had pretty good attendance. I don't think it was our normal attendance like the 600 we would see in our annual conference, but I think it was closer to between two and 400 Beth, you are actually our first podcast interview with someone who is not an employee of the Indiana Rural Health Association. Aha! Uh-huh. So you have that esteemed record now underneath <laughs> your belt. First outside guest. Yes, absolutely. So we're in the future, we're going to be talking with other individuals around the country. We started, you know, small, going in to talk about all the different programs that we have underneath our umbrella, the Indiana Rural Health Association, and starting to broaden our audience now and our topics and guests from there. Should be fun. Yes. You know, it's been really interesting. The more of these that we've recorded, the more I like them. We try and keep our podcasts, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes. So it's not a long conversation, but something just to catch a listener's ear and get them thinking about other topics. I was going to ask, where do you find your inspiration for topics? Or do you find a person you want to interview first, or do you find a topic you want to talk about? 
Yeah, it just depends on uh, things pop up here and there. You know, sometimes I'll be having a conversation with somebody and go, oh, we should totally interview for you for the podcast. And sometimes there's a topic that crosses my world. I say, oh, we should really do something on this or that or whatever. But I've also got a big whiteboard in my office and my staff will randomly come in and write a topic on the whiteboard. Hey, we should do something on this or we should do something on that. And so that list gets pretty long. It's every once in a while, I'll like write some of them down and then just write the whole thing and start over because it gets to be overwhelming. But, you know, just, you know, think about everything that has to do with healthcare. If you stick rural in it, that's a ton of topics. It certainly is. We haven't had too much feedback yet from our listeners, but we have put a page on our website where they can submit topics or even sign up to be interviewed on our podcast. Have you done anything like that? Oh, I think at one point we had a email uh, link on our podcast page on the website encouraging people to submit topics. I don't know that it's ever been used. Yeah, sometimes best laid plans don't turn out the way we think they will. What are the COVID numbers looking like in Virginia these days? So they're finally starting to come back down. You know, in Virginia, the uh, <laughs> the rollout for the COVID vaccine was prioritized for the urban population. So it didn't go to our rural communities. The hospital systems had it for their staff, but in terms of, you know, just people out in rural areas, it's just now starting to roll out. But they've they've really ramped it up in the last, oh, two to three weeks, and people are starting to get vaccinated at a decent rate. So it's coming along. I'm glad that it's coming along. Indiana took a different approach and first vaccinated healthcare workers and individuals over the age of 80, and then ran that through. There's an interactive website that you can go to based on your county of residence and find the sites in your county where you can go and get the vaccine. Yeah, I think Virginia's on its third registration website, at oh, least wow. the second. The, they put one up and it didn't work and they took it down and they put something else up, but they, they finally seem to have a, a functioning system. Oh, very good. So Beth, one of the things that you guys have on your Virginia Rural Health Association website is a boot camp for billing and coding. Could you talk to us about that? Sure. So one of the things that we recognized as a big need was for people in our rural hospitals and clinics to have the opportunity to be up to date on all of the ins and outs of billing and coding. If you can't get the right reimbursement back from the health insurance companies or the MCOs, you're going to have a hard time being financially stable. And so we worked with the State Office of Rural Health and got some funding designated to hold an annual boot camp for billing and coding and contract with Arch Pro Coding to provide that service. That is awesome. You know, here at the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center, a lot of the questions that we get are about reimbursement for telehealth. Do you have programs or RHCs that you work with specifically around telehealth? Actually, we're doing a whole lot with that currently. Last year, we received a HRSA network development grant for our Rural Health Clinic Coalition. We created a subgroup under the Virginia Rural Health Association specifically for rural health clinics back in 2016. And then last year, we received a network development grant for that group. And a part of what we wrote into that was funds for Blue Cirrus to provide technical assistance to our health clinics to help them launch a program, because none of them had done that before. And we want somebody to be able to really hold them by the hand and walk them through step by step. 
Yeah, we had our first time that we did a annual conference just for telehealth under the UMTRC label, we had someone come from Blue Cirrus and do our keynote speech, and she did an awesome job. They have been wonderful people to work with, absolutely bending over backwards, not only to meet the needs of the rural health clinics, but to provide some assistance to us on a related issue that we're having with a different contractor. So I cannot recommend them enough. Beth, in December of 2020, there was another huge bill that came out of Congress regarding telehealth and there were some things in there about rural health clinics, and there was some really confusing language. Could you talk to that? Sure. So many years ago, when the rural health clinic legislation was written, most of the rural health clinics were independents, and it was written specifically for independents. But over the years, as the critical access hospitals were created and developed, many rural health clinics were created under the umbrella of a critical access hospital. And so what happened was you got this inequity where the rural health clinics that were under the umbrella of a hospital got paid one rate and the rural health clinics that were independents got it paid a different rate. And that rate for the independents was decidedly much lower than for the provider-based clinics. And so working with the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, they for years had done some great advocacy work in D.C. to try to make sure that those independent clinics had a strong financial base. And that legislation finally went through in the fall of 2020. But when they put that through, they unintentionally, I hope, introduced a couple glitches one, where it said that the hospital-based clinics could continue being paid the way they were before if they were established by December of 2019. Well, since at that point, December of 2019 was almost a year ago, it left all the rural health clinics that had been in the process during 2020 in limbo. And so we've been working hard with our members of Congress, with the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, and with the National Rural Health Association to get that date fixed. It's essentially just a, a technical correction, but it needs to happen very quickly because many of them have things that have to be done by April 1st. Mm-hmm. How long does it typically take for a rural health clinic to get its certification? You know, that really depends on what state you're in and what the certification folks are doing on your end. We've run into some glitches in Virginia where some of the Medicare, not the people under CMS, but the contracted servers haven't been able to follow through as quickly as it need be. You know, usually the initial application is turned around in two weeks and it's been taking several months. And I think that's a combination of glitches with COVID and some other stuff. But it's it's really complicated as to try to figure out how long that's going to take, depending on where you're located. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you bring up the MACs, those Medicare contracted entities that serve as a billing entity to interface between a rural health clinic and Medicare. Do you know anything about how those MACs came to be? Because I've done some research on it, and it's it's really hard to figure out how, who, what MAC covers what area and how you get a MAC. Can you enlighten us? I'm guessing if I had an answer to that that was a good and correct answer, I could make a lot more money than I do. (laughs) All right. Well, so anybody wants to research that, there's an idea to become a millionaire. (laughs) You know, some of the things like you were mentioning, the 
legislation that created rural health clinics, and I think that was back in the 70s maybe, and then it was, was it in the 80s that the legislation came for critical access hospitals? Correct. It's, it's interesting. Every once in a while, I get that little history bug in me that wants to go out and research how all this came together. It, it's confusing. There's so many different pockets. You talk about the community mental health centers or federally qualified health centers, and you've got rural health clinics, and then you've got the critical access hospitals and the PPS hospitals, and they often have different legislation. Well, and sometimes part of the confusion is you get people who are pushing paperwork around in D.C. that either don't understand that a rural health clinic is a specific designation under CMS. They think a rural health clinic is any clinic that happens to be in a rural area, or they think a rural health clinic is a FQHC that's in a rural community. I find there's so many people that don't understand there really is a very specific designation for what a rural health clinic is. So at the beginning of our podcast, we talked about how you are the president-elect for the National Rural Health Association. I am. How did that happen? Uh, Well, I don't know. I think you better answer that question. (laughs) Somehow elections were held and my name was stuck at the top. I don't know how these things happen. (laughs) Do you have, um, so your reign, if you will, as president of the National Rural Health Association, that'll start in January with the policy form? January 2022. All right. So have you been thinking what uh, legacy you want to leave behind? Well, you know, a lot of what the president-elect does is to develop the conference feel for when they're president. So essentially, it becomes their event. And I've been really thinking about, you know, what we can do to help better connect people and have more interactive discussions rather than an audience passively listening to a speaker. Yeah, I would love to see that. We've been using a app called EventMobi for our UMTRC conferences, and I'm really hoping to get our speakers trained on that because it allows for live polls and those kinds of things so there's not as much lecture in a conference setting. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, someone from Virginia introduced it to me, Kathy Wiberly. Oh, Kathy um, knows everything. <laughs> she does know everything, and she knows everyone, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I attended one of her conferences before we started ours just to get some ideas, and that's an app that they were using at that time. Well, Beth, any last words you would like to say to our listeners? <laughs> oh, we're supposed to come up with some of our grand words of wisdom here. Um, you know, something that's interesting about podcasts, because, you know, for all of my fussing about there must be some sort of startup costs, it's a relatively inexpensive form of media, And anyone can do it. And so, you know, no matter what topic you're interested in, someone's doing a podcast about that. And I would really encourage people to explore some of the options out there because there's some fantastic independent journalism going on with podcasts. Yeah, I have noticed that as well as I did some research. And I have not been a a frequent listener of podcasts. I mean, especially during COVID since I'm not really traveling anywhere like I used to. I don't have travel time in the car to listen to podcasts, but it is a very interesting field, and I I found some really interesting topics out there. What's your favorite? Oh, I have to say my favorite stuff to listen to is Dave Ramsey and Chris Hogan. I'm a financial geek, 
What about you? I love a podcast called The Congressional Dish. The host, Jen Briney, listens to hours upon hours of congressional hearings and then breaks it down into stuff the rest of us can actually understand. It's fantastic. I will have to go out and search for that one. That sounds very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in for this particular episode of A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to discuss on future podcasts, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, I'd like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast and to our editor, Caroline Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director of the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center and should not be construed as the official policy or position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.